Hi, I'm Rami. And I'm Shannon. And this is Workplace Hugs, a podcast where we talk about interesting things we've read to help all of us expand our life toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy, but without a whole new degree. Rami, who are we talking about this week? Or what are we talking about? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about a book called Let's Start Here, Shannon. Have you heard of the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman? Yes, of course. I've heard of the movie. I don't know if I've actually ever seen the movie, but yes, I have heard of it. What about The Birdcage? Heard of it. Have not ever seen it. Okay. Have you heard of the play which became a um, movie, The Odd Couple? Uh, Heard of it. Think I've seen glimpses of it. My dad really hated that movie growing up. So I think that's why I've only seen glimpses. Okay, what about the musical Annie? Of course. Heard it, seen many versions of it. And then what about the musical Spamalot? Heard of it, couldn't tell you a thing about what it's about. It's actually about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. They turned it into a a musical. Oh, cool. So the connection between all those is what we're going to talk about, which is Mike Nichols. So I read this fascinating book called Mike Nichols' Life. It's by Mark Harris. It is... A great book. It's one of those books. It was like almost 700 pages. It was one of those books that Mike Nichols is so fascinating. And Mark Harris is such a good writer that you want it to not end. You know, when you like spend time, I don't know. I read a lot of biographies, obviously, obviously, but like when you spend a lot of time with someone, you get like very connected and you don't want their life to end, even though you know that they have died like 15 years ago the same thing happened to me when i was reading that uh jim henson one like i didn't want it to end i was thinking i just wanted to spend more time with him i've also and this was going to be a different topic but we can talk about it right now i feel like with these books because i get so emotionally invested i get really sad at the end oh and i knew i knew that i was getting to the end this book i had like three percent left and i i normally listen when i'm going for my like my runs during the week And I was like really nervous about where this book would end on my run because I knew I was going to be sobbing. Oh my God. And I was like, well, I'd really like to be sobbing like at the end of my run because it's going to be really hard to get myself back into this afterwards. And it actually timed itself really well. I got to sob, the book ended, and then they talk about a song that um, Paul Simon played at his funeral. Wow. So I got to like sob and listen to that. And then that got me to my house, which was great. Oh, wow. Rami, I just love like getting glimpses of your heart. These books really touch you, man. Even if they're, see, a six or 700 page book for me as an achiever, I'd be like, okay, come on. When is this over? When is this over? On to the next, because I've already downloaded the next three books that I'm going to (laughs) read. No, I think, so anyone who I think is interested in like movies, who's interested in Broadway, I think would really like this book uh mike nichols is fascinating he um emigrated with his brother from germany in the 40s 30s um like right before right before world war ii uh he's jewish so his parents wanted to get him out Mm -hmm. uh his name used to be igor like he was born igor Mm -hmm. and then his family changed their name so then his name became mike nichols which is much easier to pronounce than Igor. I don't remember what his full name was. Igor. Igor Mikhail Peshchikovsky. Oh, wow. Yeah, this, that's a lot easier to pronounce. 
Okay, so the thing with Mike Nichols is that he became very, very famous in a two-person comedy duo called Nichols and May. So Elaine May, Mike Nichols, they became very famous for a set of, I don't know, let's call it 14 sketches that they would do. And so they started out on like, like TV shows would have like segments where they would allow these things to happen Mm -hmm. and they would do these and they'd really well honed them. And so they got super, super famous. They put out a record and it was like the number one record. Like that's how famous these two people were. Like they were on every major TV show and like people would lose their minds to book them. Wow. And so at some point they decided, you know, we're kind of tired of doing this kind of stuff. And I think when you become famous very, very quickly and very young, like this was his early 20s, I think you develop an ego, right? Whether or not you want to admit it, like you are now the most famous person. Everybody wants to talk to you. It's probably difficult to not develop an ego in that situation. And so I think they both thought that they could succeed without the other. Like you're the one holding me back. Yeah. So they kind of broke up. He went on to start directing plays. So really oddly how he fell into it, but he started directing plays on Broadway. And his first few that he directed were very, very successful. So the first one he did was Barefoot in the Park, became a huge smash. He then directed The Odd Couple. Uh, He went on to direct a lot of really famous things, Plaza Suite, The Real Thing, Um, lots of really famous Broadway shows. He then decided he wanted to get into movies. The first movie he made was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which got him nominated for Best Director. I think he was 28. Best Director. Got all four of the main actors and actresses nominated. So this is the movie with Richard Burton and um, Elizabeth Taylor. Mm -hmm. So huge movie. Followed that up with The Graduate, which won him a Best Director Oscar. Uh, and just kept making movies forever, intermingling that with stage shows. He produced and we'll say ghost directed Annie in its original run. So helped make that happen. Really helped manage Monty Python's spam a lot. He won eight Tonys. He won Best Director Tony, I think f- four of his first five years directing. Wow. And I think he won I think he won four in the four years he was nominated. I think there's a fifth year because he didn't direct anything that year. Wow. So like literally the biggest person across both sides, right? From the East Coast on Broadway to the West Coast in Hollywood. And so he won eight Tonys. He won an Oscar. He won a Grammy for that musical record that he made with Elaine May. It was a first for a comedian born outside the US. He had four Emmys, three BAFTAs. We talked about Spam a lot, which won everything. It was the last time... It was the last musical that he was nominated for. And then he also did a miniseries on HBO for Angels in America, which is this huge show. But they made it into like a six-part miniseries that won all the Emmys that year. Holy smokes. I'm really overwhelmed by this guy already. <laughs> He's prolific and won a lot of awards. What, like, so, wow. The thing with Mike Nichols is he was... He had been an actor. He had succeeded in acting, shifted and writing, right? Like, because they wrote all their own routines. And then shifted into direction. And the thing that came up the most in this book is people loved 
working with him and wanted to work with him, right? There's a, a, a spell of time in the 80s where he directed two Nora Ephron um, scripts. And we talked about Nora Ephron in a previous episode. And both of those movies starred Meryl Streep because he had worked with her once. She loved it. She wanted to work with him again. He was kind of obsessed with her. So it worked out, right? Like he gets obsessed with people and wants them in his projects, whatever he's working yeah. on. I have to, I have to share one anecdote because it's very weird to me. So he, throughout his life, got really good at honing anecdotes about him as a younger person. We're about to get into that a little bit, but he talks about when he went from Germany to the U S on a boat with his little brother. And he says that he wore a sign around his neck that says, I don't speak English. Please don't kiss me because apparently back in the thirties and forties, people liked kissing little kids all the time. Oh my God. <laughs> it's terrifying it's super to think weird. about now. <laughs> super weird. But that was, that was his thing. Okay, so what I want to get into and what I'm distilling from all of this is his leadership managerial direction tips. Mm -hmm. So before we hop into those, there's three of them. I want to ask you, Shannon, how do you build empathy with a new group or team that you've joined or that you're leading? Like, how do you, what's, what's Shannon's quick empathy techniques? Yeah, I mean, to be vulnerable, I think this is a little bit tough because it's been so long since I've led a team. If I think about like the groups that I coach, I think I'm really curious on getting a curiosity, maybe like focusing on being informed by the person first and then matching it with vulnerability or pairing it with that. I think if I lead off with like a let me tell you all about me and like some of my most deepest vulnerable secrets. Maybe it's like partially the role that I'm in now as coach. Like it's just mm -hmm. not appropriate. Like that's just not the vibe. But, and also how can I encourage or, or feed empathy and vulnerability amongst the group by offering little nuggets here and there where it's, where it's uh, supportive to that process. That makes sense. I like that. What about you? I think I'm, I am not a, quick person to share a lot of personal details about myself mm -hmm. i'm actually very slow to do that yep true story except for when you and i are talking here i guess i don't know about that i feel like i'm still learning new things about you a few years into podcasting <laughs> and so i think for me the biggest way is to like walk people through my background which is very varied mm -hmm. and help people understand that it was a lot of a lot of changing but also a lot of, I would say, failing and succeeding upward mm -hmm. and helping people see that, one, I can be trusted because I've succeeded, but two, like, I'm, I'm not any better than anybody else because I've also failed a lot in my career. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I would do it. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's how I do it. How does Mike Nichols do it? Okay, so this is the cool part. What he does is he shares a lot of stories so they get on set, right? If it's a Broadway show, if it's a movie, and he'll share a lot of personal stories about himself to help, to help kind of get people all on the same page, but also to help build that camaraderie. Mm -hmm. Cause he'll be like, Oh yeah, I remember when Elaine and I were doing this show and like, this is, this is the thing that we were worried about. And this is how we overcame that. Or like as a kid. So as a kid, he got, I don't know what it was like. Uh, a polio vaccine or, or something and he lost all of his hair. So he was, he was perpetually bald and it wasn't, he always had 
a pretty bad wig. Everybody knew that it was a fake. It was fake hair. Uh-huh. Until he worked with Elizabeth Taylor, who at that point is like the most famous actress in the world. Uh-huh. She had her wig designer make him wigs for the rest of his life. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. <laughs> well, cuz she was that. like your wig is terrible. She's like this person can make you a much more natural looking wig. Oh my gosh. But I think being vulnerable with his team and sharing those types of things, especially coming from the status that he was, right? Like maybe not on his first few shows in his first movie, but once you roll into that second one, everyone goes, "Oh, you're Mike Nichols." Like not only are you part of Nichols and May, but you also directed those Broadway hits. You just won Tonys. And then you directed those movie hits. And so, like, you're basically untouchable. And so I think for him, it was, how do I bring myself down to people? Not down to people, but how do I how do I not seem out of the same ballpark as people and, and get them to, to trust and work with me? Mm-hmm. I've got to be vulnerable. I've got to share those stories. Yeah, I see it as like, how did he had to uh, humanize himself again? Humanize himself, exactly. Yeah. The other purpose of him sharing stories was to help get people in the right mindset for scenes, right? There would be um, times where actors would be like, I don't, I can't, I don't know what I'm trying to do in this scene. Mm -hmm. And he would tell them a story about his life. And this is, this is the part that's interesting about Mike Nichols is they would say, okay, I need it. I'm not sure what to do. And he would tell them a story. And early on in his career, I guess it was much easier to infer what he was getting at when he would tell you the story. Because he wouldn't say, I'm going to tell you the story and then explicitly explain why I'm telling you the story. But it would make sense. And they'd go, okay, I got it. Let's go do the scene. As he got further along in his career, towards the end, they were like, Mike Nichols is telling stories and nobody has any idea why. Like, he just really likes telling stories at this point. But we don't know why he's telling us these stories. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think as long as you can help people understand why you're telling those stories, right? If it's to build empathy, great. But at some point, you don't need to tell 12 stories to help build empathy or or humanize yourself. Well, and this is my curiosity of, like, wondering if in his older age, you know, like, like, stereotypical, like, oh, old people really love to tell stories. I wonder if he got... If people thought it wasn't making sense anymore because they were just like stereotyping him like, oh, he's old now. So he's just like an old man that likes to tell stories and maybe not seeing the through line as much. But here's the thing that I'm curious about. Do you think he was premeditated in that sense in his approach? I don't know. They said that when he started out as a director, because he didn't have the experience doing it, his experience all came from having been an actor. And so that's how he wanted to to lead and so he used a lot of his experience yeah to to direct yeah if that makes sense and so he kind of i don't know that he premeditated on like i'm gonna tell stories it was more like i don't know what to do in this situation so i'm gonna tell you a story and maybe that's gonna help us work our way out of this yeah and then became a signature piece of his directorial style and that's uh humanizing to me you know because when i think about like when i just hear this on the surface and i'm like okay so i should share stories to build empathy and like i think about being premeditated in that sense as a leader i'm like oh my god that feels anything but natural Uh to me but it's probably happening naturally for a lot of us you know like for sure uh, yeah like i could think of you know client situations or whatever where um you know it's not very often that 
coaching lends itself to storytelling, but where it seems appropriate or fitting and supportive. Uh, yeah, it's natural. But if, if I was like, okay, I've got this premeditated plan on how I'm going to build empathy in this next group that I'm leading, like, oh, yuck, you know? And that was my suspicion is that it, it's not premeditated. It's just like how it happened for him. Yeah, I find myself, now that you bring that up naturally, I think the thing I find myself talking to a lot of people about is my kid. Mm-hmm. But it's not because like, well, I do. I want to talk about nothing but my kid all the time. Yeah. But like something will happen where, I don't know, like the school next door, we live across the street from a like elementary school. And there's one leader one day a week who just blasts music. Uh-huh. And one day it was like, I don't remember what it was. He was playing Baby Shark, which I don't think my 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 son knows the song yet, which I'm very happy yes, about. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I was like, now it's stuck in my head. So everybody I was talking to all day, I was like telling them like, now I got Baby Shark stuck in my head. And I'm really glad that my kid doesn't know Baby Shark. Mm-hmm. And then we'll start talking about that. And I think you naturally get to those places where you're being more vulnerable and, and sharing those things if you allow yourself to. Yeah, it's presence in a way, you know, cause I was like, God, I don't think I'd ever like think about that, but that it probably just happens through being present to baby shark playing in one moment and then being present enough in another moment to, to bring that into the conversation or the equation. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first tip is share stories about empathy, but do it in a natural way, or at least have it serve a purpose mm-hmm. because if it doesn't and it's shoehorned in, it's not going to benefit anyone in the way that you think it's going to Mm. okay the second one is kind of a a call back to episode 49 which was hurting tigers which is remember what it feels like to be in their shoes mike nichols had been an actor he'd been a writer he'd been on stage before and so he knew what it was like to do those things it wasn't like he was walking into directing a play and saying okay i've never done any of this before so I i can't i can't empathize and i can't remember what it's like to do that he actually kept going back to that and then and it made actors and actresses that he worked with and writers love working with him because he respected them and their art so much right like he wanted to get the best out of everybody because he'd seen himself be pulled and get the best out of himself yeah i love this and i am brought back to this one over and over and over again um in my role as coach and in whatever I'm doing. Cause I think if we're not again, like it maybe it goes back to that theme of like humanizing yourself. If you're not remembering what it's like, I just had a client earlier this week who quit her job. She doesn't know what's next, you know? And God, it just hit me like a gut punch because it brought me straight back to the moment where I made that choice for myself. And like in a good way of remembering like, Oh, how did I feel in that moment? What was all the mm-hmm. the excitement, but also anxiety in me? And how can I remember that to be most in support of this person? And it's something that I think a lot of us can take for granted. Yes, absolutely. So I think for that one, just to hit back on it, like think about, if you're leading a team or, or experiencing something or have experienced something that someone else has, like put yourself to Shannon's point back in their shoes, remember what it felt like and, and help them gain from your experience. Right. Mm -hmm. The thing that Mike Nichols did with actors is he would always try and walk through the stage choreography to understand if it's like physically, how as an actor or actress, like you can move in that space. 
Like, is the chair the right chair? Is this the right table? Is this the right layout for how we want to do these things? Yeah. And really walking back through those steps to make sure that it's possible, right? Like if you're asking, if you're asking a team member, okay, I need you to do this analysis and I need it tomorrow. Well, try and do it. And if you can't do it in that same speed that you're asking them, how are they going to do it? Right. Yeah. Yep. And so it's, it's really like, how do you revert back into those roles that you've lived in to try and remember what it's like and, and see if what you're asking is one going to get the best output from the person and two, like, if it's even possible. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's our second piece. The third one I think is really fascinating. So it's curating your working and feedback style with each person on your team. Um, and so he would do this a lot with actors on shows and on movies. The most intriguing version of this was a show that he had done in 1984, a play called um, Hurley Burley. So Hurley Burley had this like superstar group of actors in it. And they're all movie actors that did, were doing a play. So mm-hmm. you have William Hurt, you've got Christopher Walken, Harvey Keitel, you've got Sigourney Weaver, Cynthia Nixon, and Jerry Stiller. Wow. And what they talked about was each of these people had very different personalities. Even if you just think about like the main actors there, William Hurt, Christopher Walken, Harvey Keitel, very, very different actors, very, very different personalities. And what they said was he would work with each of them in the way that they wanted to work, right? Um, I don't remember which one of the three actors, but one of them wanted to know everything about their character, right? So they would ask him a hundred questions a day. What do you think his motivation is for this? What do you think he's this? How do you think, like, what do you think his first job was? What do you think he did as a, as a kid? Like, what, what food do you think he ate for breakfast before coming in? And, and Mike Nichols would answer all those questions, right? And, and that was the, that was what that person needed to get into that role. Yeah. Another actor would say, okay, I just want you to give me some feedback. And so he would literally just like, after the scene, would give him a little bit of feedback, but like, verbalize it and say okay here's what i think and like that's all that actor needed the third actor i don't remember which one it was would literally just want to see mike nichols's eyes after the scene and like get a sense of if he liked it or not and then would make his own adjustments based off of that but like such varied directorial styles for one group of people yeah this is such a common thing i think like to me it's not that surprising but it's cool to hear it applied in this industry if you will and to think about like mm-hmm. how he had to do that um, but i can remember in one of my roles at target one of the senior leaders i think i've talked about this before saying like that she saw it as her responsibility to modify style based on the employee not the other way around not to ask the employee to modify based on the leader and where i think we feel the pinch a lot is in middle management <laughs> you know where you're like well, why do i have to do this for all my employees but my boss isn't doing this for me and like you just gotta freaking let that go and try to be the bigger person as Mike Nichols was and, and not worry so much about why you've got to modify, but just modify because you're there to get the best out of every person. Well, and I think too, what's fascinating about being in middle management is what you find a lot of time is you as a middle manager want to follow the lead of the people above you. Mm-hmm. So you're like, well, they don't adjust to how they yeah. manage me. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. But they got to that point. 
So like maybe I don't need to adjust. And it's like, well, no, no, no. The 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 piece of feedback that the piece of advice Shannon and I are giving you are very clear here. Yes. <laughs> adjust your feedback style based on the person and ask them when they start on the team or you start, what amount of feedback do you need? How do you want it delivered? Yep. And let's get aligned on that right away. Yes. Right? Because if if you're the person who's going to ask me 100 questions and need me to answer those questions, I need to be prepared for that. Totally. <laughs> and if you're the person who just needs me to like give you an eyebrow raise and you're good, I need to know that so that I'm not talking for an hour. And then you're like, yeah, I didn't need any of that. I saw you right away. I got it. And now I can move forward. Totally. I think it's getting aligned right away and then being willing to adjust, but don't let others managerial styles or feedback styles to you dictate how you lead a team yes okay rami bring it on home for us what do you want us to take away from this episode uh mike nichols was incredible yeah (laughs) he also could be terrible so really i think the big things are to succeed in a group in a leadership setting i think think about how you can share stories to build empathy Remember what it's like to be in your team's shoes and then curate your working and feedback style with each person on your team. And I think that will put you on the path to success. Now, will you get as much success as Mike Nichols? (laughs) I don't know. Probably not, but you can always shoot for it, which I think would be great. Did we say he got an EGOT? How cool is that? An EGOT, Shannon. Wow. I'm Yes, like Mike Nichols was a hyper achiever, man. Like... (laughs) No doubt about that. And for the last third of his life, he was married to Diane Sawyer. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, now we got now we got Shannon in the game. I'm like, now I'm invested. Diane Sawyer? All right. All right. Well, thank you for sharing the story of him with us. I'm always in, uh, in awe of your ability to take topics, particularly those related to the, you know, the movie industry or whatever, and apply them to the workplace. You're really freaking good at it. With that, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami, and this has been Workplace Hugs. Mm-hmm.